0: Our scripture reading this morning is Luke chapter 3, verses 21 to 38. That can be found on page 1092 in your Pew Bibles, 1092. We pick up where we left off last time with the baptism of Jesus, as John the Baptist or John the Baptizer baptizes Jesus here, and then we see the genealogy of Jesus Christ in this text. Before we read, let's ask God's blessing on the reading and preaching of his word. Father in heaven, we pray for the Holy Spirit, that he would come into our hearts and open them, and that this word, even just this rather small portion of your word, would not be lost on our heart, and that what we would see here is not only the evidence of what our Savior did for us, in receiving a baptism and becoming in every way like us and aligning himself to who we are and fulfilling all righteousness, but as well as we see his endorsement and his credentials, how he is the one to fulfill for us all that we need. He is the one, the Messiah. And may we be struck anew by that great truth even as we read his profound and, and royal lineage who he descends from and who then he is for us. We pray this in your name. Amen. Luke 3 beginning in verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the holy spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about thirty years of age, being the son as was supposed of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathet, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosum, the son of Elnadim, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Jorim, the son of Mathath, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Meliah, the son of Mena, the son of Mattithah, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed. The son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nation, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg. The son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxed, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. People of God, as we read all those names, we are meant to be astonished and astounded at such a pedigree, such a genealogy, such an endorsement, an endorsement. Is that what it is, an endorsement? Yes, it is. Credentials, even, that we see of who this man is. As the heavens rip open, as the voice of the Heavenly Father speaks as the Spirit descends and as we see who He is. As a pastor, I often get asked for certain letters of recommendation or approval or endorsement, and that's because schools and businesses and ministries want to hear of someone's character. They want to know, especially if they are a Christian institution, is this person faithful? Do they attend worship? What, what, what is your thoughts upon them? And as a pastor, you get that that's, that's part of the job, but it isn't unique, certainly, to being a pastor. This is in the business world. This is in, in the world itself. How is a job found? Well, it's through endorsement. It's through the recommendation of another. It's through words of approval of someone you might know. That, that's the fundamental way where you gain things and where you get jobs. It's that statement. It's not what you know. It's, it's who you know fact, we're far more ready to accept someone that we may not know if we know their family, if we know who they come from, and if someone we respect and know says, oh, this is the guy, I can vouch for him, you know, he's a hard worker, he'll do, he'll do what needs to be done, good kid, good character, that kind of a thing, and, and it's that endorsement, it's those words that present him to you, and you accept him, it's on that approval Well, what about embarking on the most important ministry ever? What about setting on the path to save the world? Does that come with an endorsement? And does that come with credentials? Well, clearly we see in this text it does. And what we're meant to see here, it's very simple. What we're meant to see here is just how profound our Savior is. In fact, what we're meant to see is, here's the one, or we could say, he's the one. Here he is. History leads to this man, and it all stems from him. He's the one. He's the most important, and, and, and we see why. A simple message, and yet the, the one that changes life, and to make it more personal, one the one that changes our life, and the one that we need to see. And this is why something like a genealogy is actually profound and amazing. Now, I I say this with a bit of reservation. I don't want to tip my hand too much here. I I am a big fan of Lord of the Rings, okay? My wife says I'm a nerd, and I'll trust her in that. I I don't like to tell people that. I I like to be a closet nerd of, of Lord of the Rings. I like Lord of the Rings. Well, if you delve very deeply into the material that doesn't make it into the movies, you can find a lot of genealogies, and, and I guess I'd have to raise my hand and say, I've been one to read through the genealogies to see, oh yeah, the character descended from this Numenorian king, that's really cool. And everyone here is like, yeah, he, he's a nerd. Well, when you read the genealogy, when you see it, you see how the royal line flows, you see the history, you, just, you, you see how great the descendant is because of who he's coming from. And this is all the more important in a royal line, and yet it's preceded, the genealogy is preceded with something even more profound. The voice of the Father from heaven. Both of these things together provide that endorsement and the credentials of our Savior, and that's why we can read it, and we can read these names, most of whom we don't know, and say, these are the men that Jesus descended from. Look, there's, there's Noah. Look, there's, there's Abraham. There's David. I skipped him, but there, there's Judah. These, these figures, these important figures, and, and, and where is it going? You know, the Old Testament is also full of genealogies, and you sort of build it. The genealogies are being built. We have, we even have chapters of genealogies showing something. And now, in the opening of the New Testament, in both Matthew and Luke, and as Luke is setting Jesus' ministry before us, here's the final piece of all those genealogies. It ends with Christ, and it begins with a divine endorsement divine endorsement as we see in his baptism. That's our first point, this endorsement. And we come to that critical point of the gospel. Up to this point, Luke's been laying the groundwork. We said last time that we came to the bridge between all that precedes the infancy narratives, even you could say the Old Testament, and the bridge is John the Baptist, and now here we switch. Here's the transition. Jesus now comes on the scene, and he is endorsed, and he immediately goes, and after this, in chapter 4 and beyond, he immediately goes and starts fulfilling the ministry itself, the formal beginning. And so we have front-loading that, all who he is, presenting to the readers of Luke's gospel why he's doing this, why he's engaged in this ministry. Luke's intending to emphasize Jesus' anointing here, In his baptism with the Holy Spirit, his sonship, and the Father's pleasure with him. That's what we see in this divine endorsement. Now we wonder, we ask, why is Jesus baptized? That's actually not really a question Luke's too concerned with. That's more a question that Matthew's concerned with, when John the Baptist will tell him, Lord, no, I shouldn't baptize you. You should be baptizing me. I'm not even worthy to do this. And yet, Christ says, to fulfill all righteousness, he will be baptized. And so we see in in Matthew's Gospel, we we see the answer. We see that when Jesus comes to be baptized, what he's doing, he's aligning himself with us. He's one to respond to a call of repentance, not that he had sin that himself needed to be repented from, but he, just like everyone else who was called to respond, has this sign placed on him, a sign of repentance, even a sign of sin. He takes that on himself. So he aligns himself with his people in, in this baptism. He also is setting himself up to fulfill all righteousness. That's the other thing. He has come to fulfill these very things. So that's what's going on in his baptism. But you see, Luke doesn't really focus on that. In fact, he doesn't even provide John's rather strong statements of disapproval. That's that's more given in Matthew. Instead, here, we get right to the endorsement. We get right to Luke's focus. And Luke's focus is divine appointment. The divine appointment through the Holy Spirit's anointing, attesting to his identity as a faithful son. Even grammatically, that's the most important part of this section. All the clauses hang on and are subordinate to the clause of the divine statement. This is my beloved son. That's what's of central importance here. What the Father says. This is combined with the Holy Spirit's anointing, which is itself very important. This event is one of the most Christologically significant events. What do we mean by that when we say Christologically significant? We mean this is one of the most important statements to who Christ is. There's two examples in the gospel where we have a divine statement of who Jesus is. This is one of them, and the other one comes at his transfiguration. Those two moments when the Father speaks and heaven the heavens are open to hear his voice. And so this is very significant. It's one of only two. Jesus' divine endorsement is made through that divine word, and it is accompanied with the anointing of the Spirit. And Acts 10, verses 37 to 39, explain just how significant it is. Acts says, You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. He's equipped, in other words. This is significant. He is a man, and that's what we have to understand. We we so often forget that. we We can, in an effort to defend the deity of Christ, which is what we should do, but in an effort to defend it, sometimes we just forget that he has taken our very nature, and that very nature was one that was supported by the Holy Spirit, equipped with the Holy Spirit. In fact, that he would need to be so equipped, the Holy Spirit comes upon him here in a special way to carry him with the ministry. So he's anointed, he's giving all he needs to carry this about. In fact, Luke emphasizes how concrete, how visible the descent of the Spirit was. He even says that it was in bodily form like a dove. That doesn't mean it was a dove. It's saying the way that the Holy Spirit visibly descended upon Christ was as if it was like a dove. It was similar to that. Now, now in what way? Was it fully similar? We don't know. This is what the text is saying. It, was, it reminded, it, it bore that resemblance. What does a dove mean? Dove imagery was widespread in that day and age, and because it was so widespread, it's hard to say exactly what was meant. It could mean that it was representing, here was a, a trustworthy herald. could be meaning that. It could, could be meaning by the descent uh, informed like a dove that this was one who would be the, the gentle and lowly one, the one to be with his people. It could also be a a tie-in to the time when Noah sent out a dove, and, and commentators go crazy with theories. What does it mean? Well, Luke doesn't say. In fact, none of the Gospels say what this significant was, and what is more important to Luke here is to say that it was visibly seen. The Holy Spirit took some kind of visible manifestation that could be seen to descend on Christ. He was anointed, filled with the Holy Spirit, filled to do what? His ministry and and, and who is his ministry for? Well, it was for us and God's people. Equipped to save, equipped to fulfill. We've we've seen a lot so far in Luke that has presented this message of Christ, and fittingly so. You see in his infancy narratives and the songs of his birth, just who he would be, and they they were they were pre praises, pre-songs of what this one coming would do. We saw witnesses to who he was in Old Testament saints, in Simeon and Anna. You see it supported by wise men who traveled, by angel choruses. We see in his coming to the temple to be baptized, to, be, to, to undergo the Old Testament fulfillment and cleansing, that he was fulfilling all righteousness then. And we saw there that he was thorough. Remember, that was the word we said, that he thoroughly fulfilled it all. And then in the temple, when he was a boy, we see the must of his life, that he must be in his father's house. He must be about his father's business. And all of that comes to a head here in the divine statement, the divine endorsement, the equipping of the Holy Spirit and his genealogy. This is he in, who, in Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61, 1 and 2 says this, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. That's what Jesus applies to himself. He is the speaker there. The Holy Spirit is upon me to go and do all these things. And what does this mean from the Father? The Father's voice opens up heaven. What an amazing thing. Heaven opens It's rent asunder, and a voice declares, "You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased." That's the greatest endorsement anyone has ever received, and one that was necessary here. What, What do we see here? Well, we see references to Jesus being his beloved son, beloved, the one whom God loves. Why is that significant? Because he had to be the one who God loved. The one who would go about a mystery of suffering. The one who would bear the weight of all sin. The one who would be forsaken was the one the Father loved. The only one truly, and not to mean he doesn't love us, we mean by that the one with whom never had done anything wrong, even as a man who had lived a perfect life, the one who had kept the law, the only one who had ever done it, the only one who had ever pleased the Lord, the one with whom the Father could literally look down from heaven and say, finally, the one with whom I am pleased, he's the one to embark on this ministry. There's the endorsement. Yeah, we'll accept someone to hire them, and when someone says, that's the guy, you want him, he's a good worker, well... For the most important ministry ever, that's the endorsement you want. This has strong ties to what else is said in God's Word. This, this reminds us of Isaiah 41, verse 8, "...but you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham my friend." There's ties into that. Isaiah 42, verse 1, "...behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights." I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Psalm 2, verse 7, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. So what these verses show is that Christ is the fulfillment of these, even these texts. And what it does is it couches, it lays what Christ is going to do in this messianic imagery, imagery of the son of David, the royal son That we see in Psalm 2, the one who is truly the son, and and by by making that connection, he is the king. He's David's David's son, the, the one to rule in David's stead, the one who was promised to David. In those texts from Isaiah, you see he's truly Israel. He's truly the one who is Israel represented. He's the servant, the beloved friend of God. And so that statement here, you are my beloved son, son there is really meaning the Messiah and the fulfillment of all these promises. This is who you are. Regal, messianic. And so there is the divine endorsement. And then we see appropriate credentials. This is our second point, appropriate credentials. This is the genealogy. How do we understand it? Well, credentials, and it's it's important for us to understand what these words mean as we try to explain this genealogy. When you present someone's credentials, what you're doing, they are presenting qualifications of some kind. Today, we speak of, of credentials usually through a document, a certificate, or a letter proving a person's background, typically to prove they are suitable for something. That's what's important about credentials. Typically, they prove they are suitable for something. You can, you can update this and and try to understand. It's like a driver's license. What is a driver's license? It's, it's a credential. It's saying that I've gone, I'm of the right age, I've gone through the necessary training, I've gone through the necessary tests for me to be able to operate a vehicle. Sometimes we might think those are given too freely, but nevertheless, those are the credentials of a driver's license. That's what they prove. You can operate these things. What about a pedigree? What is a pedigree? A pedigree is the recorded ancestry, especially of upper-class ancestry of a person or family. Here's what's important about a pedigree or a genealogy, a family tree. It's the background or history of a person, especially as conferring distinction or quality. We might be interested in our family trees. It's, it's where we come from. It's our family, and and that might interest us, but it wouldn't really be of interest to no one else. It's, It's our family tree. But that's not the same thing when you're talking about a Lord of the Rings character. I'll throw that in there. Or it's not the same thing, truly, of when you're talking about the Messiah. Then the genealogy matters, then it's of importance because it 's showing this distinction and this quality, and the one with whom has the right to do these things jesus couldn 't just come from any line. our messiah couldn 't just be any man born to any Jewish couple. he had to be the descendant of David, the descendant of abraham that was that 's what he had to be. He had to descend from the royal line and even have the right to rule. The Jewish throne, which was just a symbol, just a representation of the throne of earth itself. He needed to descend from them. And that's what this genealogy shows. The first details we see is, as the text presents his ministry, Jesus' Jesus' age. It says he was about 30 years of age. 30 was recognized as the appropriate beginning and, and the time you could take many Old Testament offices, like the priesthood. At the age of 30, you could fulfill it. You were able to step into your role. 30 was also the age at which significant prophets had, had performed their roles. It's believed that Ezekiel, when called to ministry, was 30. And we know that David, when he started to reign as king, was 30 years of age. This is the appropriate age. It's apt that he would be of that age. But there's also something else important. 30 years is that age of adulthood. It's that age of, of coming to maturity able to then bear these offices, which means what? It means that Christ lived a full life. Before he steps on the, the scene of his ministry, the only account we had of his, was when he was 12 in the temple, and that was a very short one. but there were 30 years of his life, 30 years of his life in which he was living obediently to the Lord, and that had to be done too. He couldn't just descend as a baby and be sacrificed. That wasn't enough. He also couldn't just descend and and, and have his little ministry and be done. It was all of it. It was that as he walked the earth for 30 years, living a full life, being an adult, he had performed obedience to the law fully. And so it's significant that he comes to his ministry after a 30-year life, having fulfilled these things, so he comes as the one tested, proven, worthy ready to take up his mantle. Now we come to the genealogy itself. If you've ever read anything about this genealogy, if you even look at one of your study Bibles, it'll probably take you only two seconds to see that the question that largely comes up isn't just what's Luke's genealogy saying, it's saying why is it different from Matthew's. Matthew's genealogy is different. Many of the names are different in Matthew's genealogy. And people like to, to question that and say, Why? Is this, is this a place where the Bible's in error, is what they would say? Well, we know, of course not, that's not the case. But what is the explanation for that? Why do they differ? Well, there are many theories. Some say that Luke and or Matthew is presenting Mary or Joseph's genealogy, that it's, it's either Mary's line or it's Joseph li- Joseph's line. And some say Matthew presents Mary's, or some say, no, that's Luke, and they, they, they differ. They're trying to say, well, who's who? Some will say what you actually have is it's not between Joseph and Mary. It's one genealogy gives you the royal line. The royal line is the one who had the right to be king. And the other gives you a biological line. And it wouldn't be uncommon for a royal line to differ from one's biological line and still end up corresponding in places where the right to rule would be that one. So they could differ in that way. Well, what's going on here? It's it's hard to say, and why? Well, the reason that we can at least say they're not contradicting each other is because of the way genealogies were used. Genealogies were used for a purpose. They were trying to convey something. Like I said, if if the writer of Luke was trying to convey the royal line, it would probably differ from what Matthew might convey in a, a biological line or vice versa. There's other reasons a genealogy could differ. The possibility that an individual had more than one name. That was actually quite common, that one would have more than one single name and could be referred to as both. And so depending on the way the genealogy phrases it, it would appear as if they differ when they may not. There's different spellings of individuals' names. There's the commonality of names. Many names were used for many different people. How would you distinguish them then? That could enter into why there would be differing names given. Genealogies, especially ones like these, would sometimes skip a generation or generations. And that wasn't a failure on their part. It was because they were conveying something else and didn't need to provide every single point on the genealogy or family tree. It also is that son of does not necessarily mean he's your direct son. It could mean he's your grandson or great-grandson. Son of doesn't necessarily imply you were his biological father. Also, we know this in the Old Testament, there is what's called levirate marriage. What, what that is, is when a kinsman would die and leave a widow, and their closest kinsman, the kinsman-redeemer, would come and provide the heir. And so the heir of this one line is technically the biological son of a different man, though he could be called the son of this man, which is right, or even the son of the one who died because he was carrying on the family line. That's another reason the lines might differ. We also have the possibility of adoption, the possibility where every name is not mentioned. And then to top all that off is that some of David's descendants were cursed. Some of David's descendants were cursed, even those who were part of the royal line, which would mean, as they were cursed, they no longer had the right to rule, which would change a royal genealogy. So you have all these things. Does this, what do we do, though? What do we do with all that? Well, we say that just to provide the answer that God's word is not contradicting itself. These genealogies likely have a, a differing purpose To highlight something else. And and why can we say that? We can say because there's a difference clearly. Matthew's genealogy goes only to Abraham, and it starts with Abraham and ends with Christ. Luke's genealogy starts with Jesus and goes all the way to Adam. That right there tells you they're doing something different. Matthew was written to a Jewish audience largely. And so he was tying him to the Jew, to the father of the people, to Abraham. Luke is written, we know this from the prologue, to Theophilus, to to Gentile, a Gentile audience. And where does he go? He goes all the way to Adam. He starts with Jesus and then acknowledges that he was not the biological son of Joseph, but as his His line as his firstborn, adopted son of Joseph, here is his genealogy. And then it goes all the way to Adam. In going all the way to Adam, what Luke has just done is he's just expanded the sphere. His audience, these Gentiles, see that he's not just the descendant of of Abraham, he's the descendant of the first man. And to, to add weight to that, what did the what did the father say right before the genealogy he said this is my son And how does the genealogy end Adam the son of God In genealogies theology is conveyed It's a way of pushing forward something in the narrative and the genealogies are of most significant where they start and where they end. And it's this pro- propulsion between Adam to Jesus, Jesus to Adam. You're connecting those two figures. And having just had a divine endorsement calling him the Son of God, you have Adam who himself is called the Son of God, and that never happened in a genealogy. There is no record that we have of those, from that time of any genealogy that called and ended with someone being called the Son of God. But Adam is what we would say then is what Luke's probably doing here is saying that Jesus is in fact that second Adam. Here's the first Adam, the Son of God, and we have the second Adam, the Son of God. It widens the scope, it widens his influence. He didn't just come for the Jews. He came to fulfill what man was supposed to do. The next chapter will will start with him being tempted by the devil. We'll say this next time, but I want to say it now. The genealogy ends, and what's ringing in your ears? Adam, the son of God. And then Jesus is tempted by the devil. That would be why he would have reversed an order. That he would have begun with Jesus' name so that Adam and Adam's name would be put right in front of when the second Adam is tempted by the devil and succeeds. This genealogy is very fitting. It shows who he is. It shows that his sonship is more than what the descendant of Abraham is, even though we all descend from Adam. By making it this explicit line, we see his point. We see who Jesus is. major theme... Of all this is that Jesus possesses the proper roots to be promised, to be the promised agent of God. He's in David's line, pointing to the regal authority and right to rule. He is Abraham's seed, pointing to the promises of the covenant. He's the covenant fulfillment, but he's Adam's seed. He's the fulfillment of the covenant of works. That's who Christ is. Genealogies hold on to memories. Memories. And as you have these names conveyed, you remember all that the patriarchs did and the promises of the Lord. You remember what took place. And then you come to Jesus, the fulfillment. He's the one. These are his credentials. There's no one else. That's what the genealogy is saying. He's the one. You know. There couldn't come a Messiah today, and I say that we already know He came, but it's the point we make. There, there is no capacity to trace this line anymore. It was Him. That might sound like such a simple point. We gathered together today to hear that He's the one. Absolutely. We're reading about the one who came, came to save us. This is, this is our Lord. This is our King. This is our Adam. He's the one. We know him. And we can praise his name by seeing his endorsement and his credentials. We can, we can just look at it and say, look at who he is. Every box is checked. Everyone is covered. He's got the right. He's got the power. He's got the endorsement. He's here. As we see this text, what we're reminded of is that the Lord's plan is indeed perfect, but the Lord's plan is also one that's hard. I go back to that statement this is my beloved Son. I'm well pleased with Him. And He's the one to go be tempted by the devil, He's the one to go starve. He's the one to bear it all because he's got the shoulders to do it. That's what all these chapters of Luke has been showing, fronting it right before his ministry. His ministry is one that he could fulfill because he's the son of Joseph. He's the son of the son of the son of the son of Adam, the son of God. He's the one, people of God, and in him we have our assurance and our surety. In him we don't doubt our salvation. If you you were to doubt it, look at his credentials. The Father was the one who said, this is the one I'm pleased with. And God's word gives you who he comes from. God has presented that. He's all we need. Here's the one. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are astonished at what we see before us, a resume, an endorsement, a cover letter, credentials of our Savior, one who you have declared before all that you are well pleased with him, this man, this man Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of the Covenant, the one who came with a compulsion within him, a must about Him to fulfill His ministry and a ministry that results in our very salvation. And one, we pray, Lord, that we would not doubt. We see Him equipped with the Spirit. We see the Trinity acting here and Father speaking and the Son being baptized and the Spirit anointing. We see You are engaged in our salvation and we are reminded even of our assurance of pardon. You are the one who desires and is pleased to show your steadfast love. Well, what is this genealogy but simply names of your steadfast love? We praise you for this truth. In Jesus' great name.